You're listening to the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. No nonsense, just a crazy mix of life, business, the funny, and of course we're going to talk about your money. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. What could go wrong? Welcome to another episode of the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. I am excited for our episode today because this is this is the third, and I would say probably going to be one of the most fun and interesting parts of this little mini tax series we've been doing. And I've got uh, my friend Matt Chauncey here to uh, unpack some really powerful stuff. So thank you, Matt, for being on with me today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. Looking forward to the opportunity. Awesome. Most people know that the first four questions are the hardest and most complicated. So I try to get them out of the way first, then everything else we say usually flows a lot better from there. So if you could have dinner with any famous person, and we're going to go all throughout human history, so they can be alive, they can be deceased, who would you want to have a meal with? Man, you know, I thought about this when you when you kind of asked me and I was I'm like, I'm all over the board because I'm not really like a person that gets starstruck by famous people. So that doesn't interest me per se. But like, you know, uh, like I started thinking about historical figures is where my mind went. Right. And so like, you know, so like somebody like Albert Einstein would be interested to see what was going on in that dude's nugget. But um, even people like um, Julius Caesar or like you know, Genghis Khan or somebody, right? Like, look, we look at that person today and we kind of vilify them for what they did, the rape and pillage and the murder and all this stuff. And I wonder if you interviewed that guy, he'd be like, bro, we were just hungry and trying to find food all the time. We didn't realize we killed a few million people. Like, I was just starving, right? Like, I, I wonder historically, looking back at some of those things, if their perspective on what they've done historically would be so much different than what the way we perceive it, looking at it through our lens today. You know, and I'm so glad you mentioned it because literally as you started that, it was funny. You said it, and Genghis Khan is one of the people that's always rolled around in my head. And I, and I agree. Like, I think, you know, history, I think a few people have said it this way. History is very much a matter of perspective, right? You know, we, we happen to be here now with all of the information and this, you know, we consider ourselves very well-informed and have our own kind of framework, but, you know, everything is is time and context, right? People will look back on us now, a hundred years from now and, who knows how they'll, they'll, you know, kind of. So let me, judge. so that you, let me follow up on that. I watched it. I watched a documentary series. So this, okay. I watched a documentary series called exterminate all the brutes. And Ooh. it was the history of the world in a four part series talked about talking about migration and how people have moved around the planet over centuries based on trade routes and 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 materials, you know, like silk and, and spices and water and and where vegetables and stuff and foods could be grown. And it was very interesting to exactly what you said is the framework of history is told through the lens of the conqueror, never through the lens of the conquered. Hmm, and, yeah. and this, and this four part series talks about from the perspective of the people of the indigenous people of the areas that were wiped out or exterminated because migration came their way for their natural resources or whatever. Very interesting. It kind of makes you feel like a bad person, but it's you don't see many things told from that vantage point. So if anybody's listening, if you haven't seen Exterminate All the Brutes, like four part documentary series, like it was like, I think it was either four or eight hours long. It was a lot. It was very, very, very interesting. 
That's fascinating. Which uh, which channel was it on? Was it like a Netflix or Prime or? I, I don't remember that. I can't remember that. I, I, you know, but I, yeah, just exterminate all the brutes. So, um, you know, fascinating. Very fascinating. Honestly, like I just I, I was just like, holy goodness, Like this is not the way they tell this in history class. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's, you know, again, I think that that's so critical. You know, the more, hey, when you get outside, you have a paradigm shift, you can see things through more than one perspective, you become a better person and it just improves your capacity to understand the world that you live in now. And so, I, I mean, I just, and I love, I love that. Yeah. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum and, and actually talk from, from the, uh, those who have been conquered, what's that like and why and Sure. Jeez, that's that's got to be yeah. All right, that's 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 on my list now. That's awesome. It's good, Perfect. It, it's a good one. It really is. It's definitely worth the time. It definitely uh, definitely interesting. That's awesome. All right, what food will you not eat under any circumstance? This is really simple. It's sea urchin. It is terrible. It's the worst thing I've ever stuck in my mouth. It's like a mushy like if you've never had it it's and when you bite into it it's like just like it, it just explodes more ooky mush it's just disgusting <laughs> like it's wow I, i'm having a, a visceral reaction to your describing it so i that's all that'll go on my not not to ever try list no sea, yeah. ur, no sea urchin no don't do it <laughs> All right. I, I, I agree. I mean, again, I can, seeing your face, even as you're telling this story, I'm like, all right, I'm not going there. All right. Um, if you could start a band, what would you name your band? You know, it's a good question. I don't know what I would name the band because I hadn't really given it that much thought. And, 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 you know, I don't want to be narcissistic enough to say we, you know, we call it the the Matt Chancy band, like Dave Matthews or something like that. I don't know. Um, but I could tell you what I would, if I could start a band and I could like make music, I would want to, the genre of music I would want to be, would want to be like a mashup between like, uh, Chris Rock, or not Chris Rock, like Kid Rock, Limp Biscuit, Billy Idol, like rap metal or something. Like I know that sounds insane, but I just loved that those that type of music when I was coming up in the '90s and you know in college and all those years, and just like just that would just be the vibe that I would want to give off if I had a band. Don't know what we would call it, but like that's that's the vibe I would want to I would want to give off. I like it. I, I mean, this is one that I, you know, it's a question if I ask it myself, I don't know if I have a good answer or if I do, it probably changes each time I think about it. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, and that's a good genre too. I was definitely uh, one I, I enjoyed quite a bit. And uh, yeah, from Link Biscuit, you know, I mean, the nineties, let's just, let's just be honest. The nineties was the best decade for music. Period. It, would, it wouldn't have hurt my feelings if I would have been a Beastie Boy. Like they, they, they were awesome. Like in their time, they just rocked it, man. They were awesome. Yeah. Totally agree. <laughs> awesome. I love it. All right. Besides this podcast, what other podcasts or, or something that you've listened to that you think uh, you'd recommend? We've already got the documentary series. What about a, what about a podcast or, or, or a good thing for somebody to listen to? Sure, sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the, in all fairness, I know we're on a podcast and I do a podcast, like I'm not the biggest podcast person, but some things that I have found interesting that I listen to, um, I, there's a, um, 
a podcast called Impact Theory with a guy by the name of Tom Ballou, um, mm-hmm. that is, you know, pretty, you know, he constantly is bringing on these super high level entrepreneurs and stuff that are, that are kind of doing big things. I, I, I find him to be pretty interesting. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of the guests that he brings on, but I, but I think he does bring on some really interesting topics that you don't, uh, that, that I don't necessarily think of all the time. So I've, that's, that's been interesting. I'm not a, the biggest Joe Rogan guy, but I, you know, I think everybody is, I'm not trying to be like, but I've listened to it a couple of times. I think it's somewhat entertaining, but I do a lot of, um, audio books. Like I'm a, I'm a fan of kind of like audio books. Um, that's probably where I spend more time than podcasts. Um, and, and recently finished, um, one by Ray Dalio, um, and, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the podcast that was on it, but Ray Dalio, um, created, uh, Bridgewater Associates, which is like one of the biggest hedge funds of all time and, <clears throat> and his systems and process. And then the book from talks a lot about the systems and processes that he had to put in place to scale this business that thought differently than other people in the industry at the time. He was very much um, a quantitative thinker um, in, in at a time when technology and computers didn't exist with the computing power the way that they do today. So he very much was trying to embrace technology and letting like the analytics make decisions for him before analytical decisions was really a thing. Um, and then the funny part, uh, is I recently met a guy personally the other day, literally in the past 30 days, that spent the first 18 years of his career at Bridgewater and Associates and wow. worked directly. And we were able to talk about that book. And it was so cool that I had just finished the book. And I literally met a guy that spent the first 18 years of his career there. And he said to me, like, what the book says is no joke. He goes, if people, he goes, most people, he goes, about a third of the people don't make it 18 months. He goes, but if you make it through the first 18 months, because it's so culturally different, he goes, you, you never leave. Like it's become indoctrinated and you never want to leave and you're like a lifetimer. And he goes, but, but a third of the people there don't make it 18 months because it is, they, they have this thing that they call radically open transparency about like, if you make a mistake, like if, if anybody finds you (laughs) making a mistake and I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing. They are going to fire you or punish you in a terrible way for ever making a mistake. But if you make a mistake and you come right out and you openly document it, write it down in a log, talk about how you made the mistake, why you made the mistake, and then the whole firm can learn from the mistake with this open radical transparency that I made a mistake, like then the firm grows from that learning iterative process as opposed to sticking your head in the sand at a normal firm and hoping nobody sees the mistake that you made and it just goes undiscovered. Like here, this there's this huge self-reporting of making a mistake and it's embraced as a good thing because we learn from it and build processes to make us better. And he goes, that is really uncomfortable for a lot of people because we're humans, we make mistakes. Wow, that's that's fascinating. And yeah, I mean, something that yeah, I think most of us could could embrace at least conceptually. But yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good culture to. I would think you know again, especially in an industry that's so challenging. I would think that having that kind of culture, knowing that you know mistakes are human errors, like we're just all equally fallible, and therefore we can we can come together and grow through them. You know, they're not they're not you know 
indictments against our character or capacity all the time. Sometimes maybe, but you know, more often than not, it's just we're all trying to do the best we can and you know, things happen and that's pretty interesting. I like that. The book is called, I wanted to look it up real quick. It's called Principles. So okay. Ray, Ray Dalio and the book is called Principles. So it's the principles and the foundation of which he, of which he built Bridgewater and Associates over, you know, a almost 50 year career, I guess. And I mean, I, and if you don't know who Ray Dalio is, I mean, he's one of the, I think, 100 richest men in the world or something like that. You know, I mean, he is, he's what he turned Bridgewater and Associates into has been uh you know, amazing at the scale that they, what they built, but it, it, he talks about the fun, the human elements, not, not the technical, what they did and, 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 you know, the, the math part of it, but, but the systems and processes of the way that they had to think differently to build something that was different than what, than what existed at the time. So um, uh, I, I found it, it was good. I think everybody should, you know, dig into that a little bit. I love it. Fascinating. Uh, uh, man, you're just adding all these things to my list. My list grows all the time. <laughs> and that's a good, that's, that's a good lead into, you know, talking about yourself and your practice. Cause you, you have, um, yeah, you've got a really unique practice, uh, and, and you work in, in a very, um, significant way with, with some really fantastic folks. So what's the Matt Chauncey story? You know, look, I, I just I wanted to do something. I've been in finance for a minute, I guess. And I think there's a lot of people that do. Um, unfortunately, I think they listen to the ecosystems of, of which or the apparatus that they're plugged into. So, you know, there's people in the insurance space that have a BGA type relationship or whatever. And, you know, they're espousing the belief system or the mission of the parent company um, and talking about product services and strategies that suit the mothership. Right. And, and, or maybe you're with a big wirehouse, you know, for those of you that don't know that are listening, the Morgans, Merrill's, UBS is the big companies out there. You know, look, all of these companies have a, a menu of services that they del deliver for a client, no different than a Taco Bell, right? You know, you walk into a Taco Bell and you ask somebody behind the counter at a Taco Bell, Hey, do you, do you know what a hamburger is? They know what a hamburger is and they know that a hamburger is delicious, right? But they don't sell hamburgers. Why? Because they have a menu that says, this is the stuff that we sell at a Taco Bell. So people don't recognize that in the financial services space sometimes that the menu that they go into and see at a financial services company is somewhat curated to provide products and services and strategies that might be um, congruent with the way that they want to serve their clients, but many times isn't congruent with the way that they want to serve their clients. But now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because I'm a person at a place doing a thing that I with tools that I don't 100% believe in. And, you know, I don't know how long somebody can do that. So I was stuck in that same apparatus like everybody else. And it was extremely frustrating to have these like handcuffs and limitations of things I could and couldn't do, couldn't serve the people I wanted to serve in the way that I ultimately wanted to serve them. And so I just had to build a business that um, felt intellectually honest for me and let me serve people the way that I wanted to serve them and work with the clients that I wanted to work with the way that I wanted to work with them without those types of limitations. And so you know, you constantly are pushed against, you know, the limitations of licensing and, and the way our industry works, which is extremely complex. Um, 
But, you know, I wanted to work with um, and look, everybody says this, um, you know, about wanting to work with a higher net worth client or a higher income client or whatever. Um, but the reality is not everybody's built for that. Not everybody has the skill set for it. And, and I'm not telling you that I'm a that I'm amazing or anything, but, you know, I've always been somewhat entrepreneurial. Um, very entrepreneurial. I've always had a, an asymmetric understanding of a risk return trade-off. Like I understand when the juice is worth the squeeze and when to lean into those opportunities and not everybody, some people are built to wake up and get educated and work in a cubicle for somebody else for 40 years. They are wired for that. I ain't that person. <laughs> I needed to work with other people that were like me, that were a little bit off the reservation that because i that's the only way that this is emotionally fulfilling for me is to be around other people that 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 work with me a little bit. And so um, and to give you an example and like so I, I tell this story every once in a while. So people find it interesting is, you know, when I was in my so I started off in healthcare, ironically, not in finance. And when I was in my late 20s, I got a um, an offer from a guy. So there was a guy at my gym that had raised some private money from a guy that had sold a telecom business. And that guy says, um, hey, I want you to come help me work for this medical device company. I want to start this medical device business. And how that all worked out is not really the part that's the most interesting part that talks about what my what's in my DNA, right? But this is the part. So that guy made me a job offer of what he would pay me from a salary, what he would give me a bonuses and what he would cover my expenses and all the stuff to do the job. And it was a small startup at the time. So I was clearly leaving like a big fortune 500 company in the medical device world to go to this really small startup opportunity. And my counter offer to him was, I don't want a salary. I don't want you to cover any expenses. I will manage my own business 100% but I want 4X of the commission that you're presenting and I want it paid in perpetuity forever. Every time you receive a dollar that I generated, I want four times what you said you would give me and I want my piece of that dollar. And the guy literally said, there's no way anybody would accept that job. And he's not talking about from his perspective, like hiring somebody under those terms. He's like, no person on my side would take a job with no salaries, no expenses, and absolutely doing that in that industry for that company. And I said, that's the only job I will take. Like, I, there is nothing else that's interesting to me except that. And you know, reluctantly, the guy said, uh, you, you know, we 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 work together. And a few years later, um, I was making way more than he was as the owner of the company. And 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 we had to, you know, negotiate a, to walk away from one another. Right. But I have always been wired that way to bet on myself in a way that a lot of people won't. And um, and and that's a trait um, risk appetite, not that they need to take crazy amount of risk. That's not, you know, like I'm not suggesting people put their money in a bunch of crazy stuff because I'm in the financial services space, but understanding how risk works, right. Is extremely important. And some people have absolutely no appetite for it. And I've always had a strong understanding of, of a risk return trade-off. And, um, I think I wanted to work with people like that, um, that I could, that I could help solve problems for, you know, the entrepreneurial type, right. 
When you, when you open a new business, there's no guarantee that the product lines are going to sell, that the new trucks that you bring on are going to generate revenue, the new employees you hire, the new product lines you launch. There's no guarantee any of that stuff works. But as an entrepreneur, you do it because you think that you're, it's going to work. It's a calculated gamble that I'm going to make $2 for every $1 I lay out or $3 for every $1 I put out. And I just wanted to work with people that, that, uh, that thought that way. And I had to be at a place that allowed me to curate the product service strategies and tools that I use to be able to serve those people. And most financial services companies are built on the back of a product matrix that works for a mass affluent client, which there's nothing wrong with being mass affluent. Um, I grew up poor, so I would have loved to have been mass affluent. Growing. <laughs> that would have been awesome, you know, uh, but um but the same tools that work for the mass affluent are not the ones that work for the entrepreneurial uh, and the, and the people that understand uh, risk. No, absolutely. And I, and I want to, I want to dig in a little bit more because I really do like the way that we talk, you, you talk about finances as an ecosystem. And so, you know, I mean, based on your experience and the people that you work with, how would you describe success in that ecosystem? Look, so that's a good question. Um, you know, when I say ecosystem, so like I, I think that our health and our wealth are, are 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 closely correlated, right? And I'm and I mean that from this perspective. So if your if your health goes bad, right? Like if your health fails you. Um, you have to spend money on doctors and meds and therapies and treatments and all this stuff. So it starts to have a negative impact on your wealth, right? Um, and if your wealth goes bad, I would argue that it causes stress and heart attack and all kinds of other stuff. So it has a negative impact on your family dynamics and the way you treat your kids and your spouse and your coworkers and whatever, right? So I think that your health and your wealth are interconnected and they're very much related. And so if you look at it from that framework, then you say, okay, well, when I look at my health, how, what are the things that, that make my health an ecosystem? Well, if you sat down in front of a doctor and you talk to the doctor, the doctor would ask you things like, well, hey, um, you know, what are you eating? Are you eating good food? You eating fast food? You eating junk food? You eating fried food? What are you eating? What are you putting in your body? How are you fueling yourself? Are you sleeping at night? You getting a lot of good sleep? Are, are you drinking plenty of water? Are you consuming too much caffeine? What about drinking alcohol? What about smoking cigarettes, right? What about doing drugs or whatever, right? So all of this stuff that you do to your body or don't do to your body causes your health ecosystem to ebb and flow, to do better or do worse, depending upon how many of those things you do right. And we're humans, we're flawed. So none of us do it all right. We have a few things that we all hang our hat on that we do really good. And then we we're like, yeah, but I didn't tell anybody about that bag of Oreos I ate last week. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah. We're all, we all have closet health issues that we don't want to talk about, right? We we all got that friend that we know that's like, no, I don't smoke. But then every time you go have three beers with them in a, in a ball game, you see him outside lighting up a cigarette. They're like, no, it's only after I've had a couple of beers, right? So <laughs> no judgment, but, it, but we all know those people, right? Um, well, in finance, it, it, it's somewhat the same way. You have an ecosystem and the way that your, your financial health bubbles up. Investment, insurance, retirement, estate, and taxation are the five core pillars of financial planning. Like, you know, it's, it's some of the cornerstone modules they teach you in the CFP and a whole bunch of other training, you know. And, you know, there's a lot of guys out there trying to sell insurance to people. And there's a lot of guys out there trying to sell investments to people. And there's, you know, CPAs that are supposed to be helping you with your taxes or tax attorneys and whatnot. And, and then you've got your estate planning attorneys and all this stuff. And then retirement is primarily your, you know, ERISA and your savings plans and, and 
you know, a lot of people think of a 401k as an investment plan and it's not, it's a savings plan, right? Mm -hmm. It's really what it's designed for. So, you know, understanding how all those tools work and using them all in the right way, you know, you can be really good at your, you know, investment world. Um, but if you don't do proper estate planning, well, then you lose half of your assets when you ultimately die. And, and so did you really make all that money and save all that stuff in the first place to give half of it away? Cause you didn't close the loop with bad estate planning, right? That's how, how different is that? than going to the gym all day, every day for an hour and a half every day, but then drinking a, a liter of vodka at night, every night to put yourself to sleep, right? Like it's an ecosystem. It's not going to work out well. And, and, and so I just look at it from that perspective. And I say, you need to do all these things like the right way, but everybody's life is different. So some people, estate planning is a more um, core solute thing that they need to lean into because they have more state issues in complexity in that side. Um, whereas other people, it might be the investment sleeve or some of it, it might be the insurance piece, right? Um, so everybody's life shows up in that way, a little different in that financial ecosystem of the parts that they need to touch more than others. And, you know, and, and, and I, my business is gravitated towards the tax side. And so, you know, taxes are, when you're talking about it from things from a tax perspective, tax is the only thing that speaks directly to a high net worth client like a dog whistle, right? Because if you're paying $100,000 a year in taxes, you you feel that every single year when you write that check for a hundred grand to the IRS that, hey, I just wrote a $100,000 check to the IRS. That's a that's a car. I just gave a car to the IRS or whatever, right? Like a co college tuition just gave it to the IRS, right? So you hope that number one, the IRS uh, redistributes that wealth in a prudent way, right? And I, and that's a political yeah. conversation, and I'm not going to get into that. But but you know, we all hope that the government does the right thing with our money. Um, but but it but it's the thing that speaks directly to a high net worth client um, because they are writing that check, and it's extremely painful, and it's something that happens year over year. And it's the only thing that, if you plan for it, that you can provide an instant level of gratification to a high net worth client. Because if you sell, if you can save somebody a strategy, uh, save somebody hundred thousand dollars a year in taxes with a strategy um, that's completely legal and legitimate, like that happens the next time they file a tax return. Whereas if you're in the investment management business and you tell somebody you're the best investment management or in the world, and you might be right, it takes a few years for them to realize the outperformance of the ideas that you brought to the table. That is not as instant gratification as saving somebody a ton of money on taxes. Or if you're in the insurance world and look, everybody needs insurance until they accumulate enough assets to self-insure, right? Um, <laughs> but, but then nobody ever wants their insurance to pay off. Like you don't want to use your disability. You don't want to use your health insurance. You don't want your life insurance to kick in, right? Um, because those aren't typically good things when those type of, of things happen. So you have them as a protection and as a precautionary measure because there's other people that you care about and that you love um, or things that you don't want to see fall apart when you can't wake up, dress up and show up and, and be yourself anymore, right? So- yeah. So for me, it was it was, you know, tax planning was the shift that I made to figure out how to, you know, build the trust of a higher net worth client that had a risk tolerance. And, and the one thing and I'll, I'll, I'll end that this kind of talk with that is, you know, I, I have a lot of wealthy clients, very wealthy clients. And people ask me all the time, what's the commonality with the wealthy clients that I have? Is it education? Is it industry specific? Like, 
So here's what I can tell you. They're not all doctors. They didn't all go to Harvard, right? Um, I, I got clients that are high school dropouts that are worth tens of millions of dollars, right? Um, the commonality is risk appetite and understanding how to manage risk in their life and understanding if the juice is worth the squeeze on the things they get involved into in their life. The commonality that all of my rich clients have is understanding how to take calculated risk. Makes a lot of sense, you know, and that's one of those things that, you know, like you're saying, it shows up in that financial framework and their financial ecosystem and their understanding as to why they're going to pursue certain things that other people might not, but also probably speaks to, you know, an element as to why they're wealthy in the first place, because there's certainly a lot of, you know, we, we, we can see, you know, these, those types of traits that help you achieve massive success that, you know, the next 10 people may be trying to do what you're doing, just don't do. Yeah. That betting on yourself. And it's a fascinating profile sometimes to see how did this person just blow up when, you know, the next hundred people did it. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a lot, of, it's a lot of fun. And, and, and the road is the road to success is littered with people that went for it and didn't make it. Right. Yeah. But at least they shot their shot. And I know that that's kind of like a young hip thing. The way the kids talk about it today is go shoot your shot, you know? So like, I, but, but it needs to be, calculated it needs to be yeah. you know the downside of you shooting your shot and miss is not that you have to jump off of a bridge and end your life if you're wrong right like yep. you know so it has to be a calculated risk to say okay if this works how great is the upside and if i miss the downside can't be catastrophic failure right yeah. and and that's hard for people to size up because you know so many people might have a risk appetite go all in but if they bust and it doesn't work there's no outs they're stuck and that's and that's not what i'm talking about because that doesn't work for anybody you know yeah and i think that there's there's also this framework of of perseverance and understanding in terms of you know how do you how do you handle failure or challenges or whatever that is you know, like we mentioned, even even in that book, right? You know, looking at them as opportunities. I think sometimes, you know, you, you bringing that type of mentality helps you go further than other people do. I always love the story of WD forty, and it's on their website, but most people don't know the reason WD forty is called WD forty is because it's the fortieth version of the formula that worked. So there were thirty nine other versions of WD whatever that that weren't it and so it so think about you know i mean again just what a great story we failed right 39 times to get to wd-40 and there's not a single person that doesn't know what wd-40 is probably we all have at least a can of it somewhere in our house right sure it's just you know again that's that's a different way of looking at something when you know what you're trying to do and you have a vision and an end game and a means to persevere to get to that kind of a place. It's fascinating. Well, I think they tell that story with like, with like Edison, right? Like they say that, you know, Edison finally found a way to make the light bulb, but the way he did that was he found 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. Yep. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. That has so much value then, especially when it gets into things like you were talking about. So advanced, tax strategies. You get into some complex areas that I think certainly the the layman and even some of the more adept folks in either tax, accounting, uh, investing, and even the legal fields probably don't know about. So you want to talk about some of the ones that you find 
come up a lot and or are things that, you know, somebody that's a $10 million entrepreneur with an income problem, income in air quotes, might at least want to be aware of? Well, let's talk about it. And fair, we'll get to that a little bit. Let me talk about it a little bit this way. I think this will help some some pre-framing to get to that conversation, right? So there is an expectation or at least a a, a a thought behind the fact that they're like, well, my CPA does tax planning, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and so the reality of that is, and so look, my my own mom doesn't even know really what I do. So, but I can tell you this a seminal moment when I had a conversation with my mom where it hit home what I do, right? So my mom is um married for the third time. She was married to my dad. They divorced when I was young. I had a stepdad in my life for like almost 30 years. Charles passed away. Um, and so my mom got remarried. So my mom gets remarried to this new guy, doesn't know me very well. Um, it is a little intimidated. It's like, I don't want to meet your son. You know, like he's not going to like me type deal, whatever. And I'm, I don't care. I just want mom to be happy. Right. So they're filing their taxes one year and they're using um, his CPA. And mom is doing her tax return through his CPA. And so I said, you know, I, I, mom's like, God, you know, I've, you know, um, and there's a whole conversation about, you know, what my, I've helped my mom build a business over the past few years. I have given her the ideas. She has, as we say, our little saying between her and I is, listen, mom, I'm going to tell you what to do, but you've got to make it your own. And I just want you to wake up, dress up, show up and go leave it on the field today. And we'll, and we'll see what happens. And if you will do that every day and always put customers first, this, this will work out. Right. And my mom, you know, my mom is a, she is a high school dropout. She had me really young. She has a GED, um, you know, went back, I got her high school equivalency or whatever. Today, my mom, from an income standpoint is probably a top five percenter. If you look at the statistics, um, my mom had a job for 30 years that she never made more than $33,000 a year in income. She sat at a desk and she thought that a company would take care of her. And then when my stepdad passed away, they fired her because she was depressed because she'd lost her significant other of 30 years. She cried at her desk, company fired her. Mom didn't know what she was going to do. She's in the insurance industry today. Um, I've coached her to be in it, but she has done all the work all the work. And today, and she is, you know, she is, um, she, my mom will be in the next couple of years, a seven figure income earner. Um, And that sounds insane, but like, so when people tell me I can't do something, look, I grew up in a trailer park, right? Both of my parents weren't educated growing up. So anything is possible, right? Like, so people, people make too many excuses, but point in telling you all that. So here's the time when my mom learns what I do for a living. And so her husband says, um, mom's like, God, I can't believe how many taxes I have to pay this year. I mean, I think at this point she's paying more in taxes than she ever made at her previous job in her career. And she's like, this sounds crazy that that's a thing, but it's a thing. Right. And she says, well, what can I do? And so, you know, her, her husband says, well, you know, all oh, that CPA is doing everything and he can't possibly do. If there's anything you possibly done, she's reducing all of your taxes that could I said, okay. I said, well, I said, I'm going to send you an email and I want you to just forward that email, just copy and paste it, put it in your email, send it to the CPA and see what happens. So I basically write an email and I say, you know, Mr. CPA, is there any type of qualified retirement plan that we could implement this year that would allow for a deduction from last year? Because we're in Q1 of the following year. We're not even in the current tax year. That would allow us for a deduction that would help us save taxes. Do you is there anything like that that might work, right? Just 
paraphrasing. So I send it to her and her husband says, don't you send that to our CPA? That's insulting because if there's, if he could have possibly done anything, he would have, or he would have already done it. He's the expert. He knows. So my mom is like, not sure. And she's on the fence 50, 50, but she's like, I'm just, I'm going to send it. I'm going to see what happens. So the CPA doesn't pick up the phone call. The CPA does not reply and ask any additional questions. The CPA modifies the return, adds a SEP retirement plan to it, shows the maximum contribution she can make, sends the new edited tax return back to her, um, says this is the amount of money that you need to go open a SEP and make the contribution for, and charges her $1,500 for that advice after I sent the email to send to them to say, is there anything that you can do? Wow. And her husband is like, how is that even possible? So now he's pissed or embarrassed, right? That he put up the fight to say, don't send this email. So he calls the CPA, chews him out, right? For not doing his job right. And the CPA refunds all of their money, you know, from their tax returns. And they said, can you find us a CPA that will actually help us do good stuff, right? So that was the first time ever that my, this was a few years ago. This is the first time ever that my mom had any idea what I actually do for a living, right? <laughs> and that was so basic and so fundamental, but, but like, People are under this perception that the CPA has time to look at things from a planning perspective. When they don't, they have to manufacture tax returns as fast as they possibly can by deadlines. It's take this information, put the right numbers in the right boxes in the right forms at the right time so that you stay compliant, right? Now, there is nothing wrong with that. There is value to that service for a lot of people. But there are people that that service isn't value for because they need time from planning, but CPAs don't have time to plan. So if you're not, so as a general rule, if you're not coming into your CPA or tax professional's office in the second half of the year and paying a separate fee to have a separate conversation, then you ain't getting tax planning. I don't care what you think. You ain't because they don't have time to go back and just stare at your tax return and noodle on a bunch of ideas that might save you a little bit of money. If you ain't paying for that separately, you ain't getting it. And, and that's a big misconception with a lot of people. And that's what my mom and that's what her husband thought that, of course, that person is looking at all the ways to save us taxes. But they weren't until I introduced an idea. And then the thing that made him mad was then they tried to invoice them for the idea that we brought to them. In the first <laughs> right. Now, now, look, adding a SEP retirement plan is really that's a mass affluent solution, right? Like make no bones about it. You know, any type of qualified plan, 401k, you know, IRA, SEP, simple, you know, all those type things are things are, are mass affluent tools for savers to help you save money in a tax advantage way, whether it's an IRA, Roth, you know, pre-tax, post-tax, whatever it is, they're just savings tools. Um, and people should save, but you know, we, People like to spend and consume in our society today. So very few people save as much as they should. Um, and, you know, the goal of saving is that hopefully you can save a mountain of money that if you redeploy that money into good investments, that that mountain of money can generate enough income to replace your paycheck. Like it's yep. not an overcomplicated thing. It's really that simple. Um, so, you know, it's but there's a lot of people that think they can out invest um, a bad savings rate. And you just can't, you can't do it. Right. It's like in the in the health world, a trainer will tell you all day long, you can't out exercise a bad diet. hundred percent. 
As, as a former personal trainer, I can I can confirm that on multiple levels. <laughs> That's right. So you can't out-exercise a bad diet. You can't out-invest a bad savings habit. You just can't do it, right? So you've got to learn to become a saver before you become an investor. I can't tell you how many people reach out and go, oh my God, what should I put my money into? I'm like, well, tell me about how you save. And well, no, no, no. Well, I got a couple of grand. And I'm like, no, no. So then you need to learn how to save before you learn how to invest and you don't know how to save. So once you've saved a hundred grand, call me back and then I'll teach you how to start investing because you can't do the fundamentals, right? Yeah. So, you know, that that's one of the conversations I have with people. So, so then how did my business evolve from that? So it's, it, it's CPAs primarily don't do this type stuff. Um, doesn't mean they don't want to, doesn't mean they don't care about their clients. It's just a function of the way the business model is set up. So it's not that they're bad people for not providing this or they've been lying to it or misleading us. That has nothing to do with it. It's just the way the business model is structured, you know. Um, so getting some tax planning in the last part of the year and paying money for it, paying an additional fee for it is not how most humans are conditioned to work with a tax professional. If they were, if every engagement started that way, guess what? In the first half of the year, I'm going to do compliance work. In the second half of the year, I'm going to do planning work. You're going to get two phone calls from me this year, like, and you need to take them both, and they cost separately. Like, If they just told people that when they started, I think everybody would be fine, but that's not the premise under which most of them work. So for me to build an interesting and intellectually interesting business out of it, I wanted to work with clients that had a risk appetite like me. That, that tended to make more money um, and needed more complex solutions than a SEP, a simple, a 401k would provide. Look, if you're making two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year and you can save 10% of your income in a tax advantage solution through a, like an ERISA retirement plan, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But what if you're making $3 million a year and you can only put away $40,000 a year or something in a comparable plan? That's not 10% of your income. So it's not proportionally speaking, they're making a lot more, but where are the tools for the $3 million guy to save 10 or 20% of his income if he wants to? And how in the world would a CPA note statistically only one in 10,000 clients ever are worth $10 million or more, but yet the average CPA has 500 clients. How do you have a skill set to solve a problem for a $10 million client when statistically you don't even have one? Where, yeah. did, you get the, where did you practice? Where did you learn? Where did you get the tools to solve the problem for that person? You, you didn't. You don't, right? And so, but people hire CPAs earlier in their career and they build trust and they grow together with them. It's almost like a frog boiling in a pot of water, right? You put a frog <laughs> in a cold pot of water and you turn the you turn the heat up on it. And over time, it cooks the frog, right? But if you dropped them in hot water, they would eventually know. If you took a really rich client and you dropped him on a CPA that doesn't know how to do sophisticated things at that point in their career, the client would instantly go, I don't want to work with this guy. He's not bringing anything to the table. But when that C client grows big with that CPA relationship over those years, he goes, you know what? I know this guy. I trust this guy. I've been with him for two decades. He's got all my personal information. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I trust this guy. And there's a lot of value in trust of what's the devil that I know versus the devil that I don't, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So people stay and get cooked like a frog because they trust the relationship. And I think they should. I think it's very important that you trust the relationship because relationships matter. But that doesn't mean, look, my third grade teacher, Ms. Doherty, was phenomenal. And I can still remember her to this day. I think she was extremely influential all my life. Like it was the first time I could, I can't remember the name of any of my teachers before. And I don't really remember any of the ones after until maybe I got into high school. But I can remember Miss Doherty from third grade. But guess what? I outgrew Miss Doherty from third grade. I had to move on <laughs> to fourth grade and high school and college and grad school and so on and so forth, right? So you can outgrow the relationship that you have from a technical standpoint and then still be a valuable relationship in your life, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so what you would hope for in that scenario is that the trusted and valued relationship that you work with, that you built with all these years would recognize like, and let's make this analogous to medicine for a second, right? So in the medical field, you have a general practitioner, a DO, whatever, your regular doctor, you go in, he asks you some questions, he runs some tests. If he scans you or whatever test and determines you have cancer, he does not throw you up on the table, grab a scalpel and say, here we go. I'm going to flip open the manual and we're going to cut that cancer out today, right? <laughs> Yep. It's crazy. It's laughable. He refers you to a specialist to run more tests that refers you to a specialist that knows how to get that very specific type of cancer out. It's not only just that it's cancer, it's what type of cancer is it? Where is it in your body? And all of those things matter depending upon the course and type of treatment. And then the time that you get to that specialist, that person only fixes that one type of cancer probably a hundred times a week or something like that. So yeah. they absolutely know that type of cancer in that part of the body as a specialist. So the way you should view your CPA is as the hub of, I trust this relationship. I want them involved in my sophisticated tax conversations, but I want them to be able to say, I don't know all of this stuff and I can't know all of this stuff, but I can help us collectively find people that do know it and then we can collectively in a group think way go, is this the right decision for us to be making? I think that's really all you're looking for from your fundamental tax planner that you work with. Now, if you later in life after becoming uber successful are on the secondary market shopping for a new relationship because your person retired or your person died or whatever reason, right? They're gone and you don't have access to them anymore or you just finally were sick and tired of them not doing any work for you because that happens and people change, you know? Um, then I think you are looking for that specialist when you're out there searching in the marketplace going, give me the guy that works with people like me that are worth $10 million that make a ton of money that have all the tools to solve my problems. But most people don't get to that point. Most people stay with their original relationships and they ride that whole thing out and they just continue to hope that that person is going to drive value for them in ways that they don't have the technical skill, the training or the experience because they're not implementing these more sophisticated strategies. And because of that, you get this issue where people take an idea to their CPA the CPA goes, hmm, I have one client that might benefit from this as if this is a real thing, right? So right. might. So then they go, well, I could spend hours digging into it to see how it works. But then I wouldn't know how to charge the client for that if I did that anyway. If I spent hours and hours and hours trying to educate myself on it, I wouldn't know how to help the client, how to get the client to pay me for those hours. Or they just go, you know, high level, they take a look at it real quick and they go, oh yeah, we've looked at those before for other clients that totally doesn't work. That's not going to make any sense. That's a bad deal.
So, because they don't want to throw any time into it. They don't want to dig into it because they know it's one client. The problem is, is that one client is usually one of their largest clients, not one of their middle of the road clients, right? And I ask, I ask CPAs all the time or in, in professionals when I'm working with them, I'm going to say, hey, why don't you tell me about like five of your most average clients? Describe them to me a little bit. You know, tell me, you know, their names, what they do for a living. You know, yeah, just five of your, you've got 500 clients. Tell me about the clients that are like 250 to 255, right in the middle. Describe those people to me. No one can ever describe what a middle client is to them ever. So then I say, fair enough. Tell me about a couple of your richest clients. Oh my God. Well, Bob and Joan have been with me for 22 years. They own seven companies. They got six kids. They got three dogs. They are trying to travel around the country in their RV. They know everything there is to know about a couple of their biggest clients, everything. And then you ask them a question. What have you done to help that couple save $100,000 or more in taxes over the past few years? What ideas, strategies, and tools have you brought them on a proactive basis that have moved the needle for them? And you'll get nothing most of the time, right? So your average client in the middle that your business is built on, you can't even tell me who those people are. The people at the top that you know everything about because they're paying the biggest fees because you're probably doing their payroll and their billing and their reporting and their balance sheets and you know all that stuff. You, you can't tell me what you've done that adds value to their life, even though you know them. That seems to be a, a serious incongruency of the way that those clients really want their advice delivered. Um, and, and that's not a reflection of the CPA not being good at their job. It's just the way the, the, the ecosystem played out over time. Because if people hire you at the beginning, there's a lot of businesses that go nowhere and fail. There's a lot of businesses that go completely sideways on a really just jobs, but those people are still mass affluent. And there's a few that take off like a shooting star or a unicorn or whatever. And those people need different tools. But if you've only got one or two people in your whole book of business that need something like that, how would you have the skill set to solve that problem? Yeah, I very much use that medical analogy because, you know, at our practice, that's what we've built out. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to be the specialist in 28 different areas. We know what we're really good at and we're going to bring the right parties to the table that are the cancer specialists when that's the issue that comes, comes up because you have to have the high level expertise in order to get the right experience, solution and value. And you know, you, you said it yourself, like if you've got, you know, $10 million in income and a whole bunch of stuff that that's not an, first of all, that's not an average tax return. That's <laughs> right? definitely not. And uh, yeah, the, the, the solution needs to fit the situation. Absolutely. No, and I, I agree with that. So it's just, it's, it's, it's understanding that you're different and understanding that are tools that are different and understanding that the primary person that you have a trusted relationship probably doesn't have the skill set. That doesn't mean that they don't need to be part of the team. They do need to be part of the team because you have trust and you have a history with those people, but they're not the expert that's there to cut out the cancer and make no mistake about it. If you're rich, if you're making seven figures or more, you are eat up with tax cancer. So I hope somebody's treating you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, in that scenario, let's pop the hood and look under uh, and see what's going on in the engine. So what are, what are some things when you, you you're facing that type of situation that, um, you would be coming in to look at to to better diagnose and address going beyond all of the very low level, you know, I, I guess I have a, a business that has a 401k, all that kind of stuff. Now I'm at levels two, three, and four, 
what are some of the things that you can go in and say, hey, this is this, these are some of the strategies that are going to make a dent for that person? Well, the, well, the first way to look at this is not necessarily about the strategy, right? It's about you re- everything is reverse engineered. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, and I don't want to say custom and I hate the word bespoke, you know, but you know, what it is, is like, what problem are we solving for? So are, are you making more than a million dollars in active ordinary income? Right. That could be one fact pattern that you're solving for. Um, Are you in the process of going through a capital gain event? Are you selling your business? Are you selling real estate? You know, do you have a whole bunch of assets uh, that are generating income for you um, on a passive basis. So now you have a bunch of passive income potentially that needs to be mitigated in some potential way. Um, uh, did you sell something that um, was deductible on the front side um, or depreciable? And therefore it comes back as what's called depreciation recapture, which is a form of ordinary income, which statutorily has capped you know, uh, the tax on it is capped. It doesn't go all the way to the top of the brackets like traditional ordinary. But so tax has different nature is my point. All tax is not the same. Some of it is gain. Some of it is long term. Some of it is short term. Some of it is ordinary. Some of it is active. Some of it is passive. And so understanding the nature of the tax that we're attempting to solve for is one of the first things. It's just not a tax is a tax is a tax. Right. What is the tax? How did the tax get generated? And so, so when we figure that out, then the part is like, well, and then what do we want to do with the money? Like, where does the money want to go? Most people have an idea of what they want to do with the money. So um, do I want to plow the money back into my business to grow my business? Okay. I hear that from people all the time. My best return on capital, my best return on equity. And this is why financial advisors really aren't very good for business owners most times. Um, And people don't understand this, but there's this huge incongruency. So you get a financial advisor showing up trying to work with a business owner and the financial advisor is like, hey, let me show you these investments that make like six, seven, eight percent on your money and all this other kind of stuff. And this business owner might not be able to articulate this the right way, but they know that if they take those same dollars and plow them back into their business with more marketing, more staff, you know, something that they're going to make a whole hell of a lot more money than 8% on their money. And they might not be able to articulate it that way. But so when financial advisors are constantly like, take money off the table, put money into this, put money into that. And the business owner's like, I make five times that when I plow it back into my business. Like, why would I want to take and save money? Like I'm working with a client right now selling a business for $8 million. They're in their early 60s. They don't have $1 saved in any type of retirement plan, in any type of investment, in any type of anything. Every dollar they have ever made has gone directly back into growing their business. But today they're in their early 60s and they're in the process of selling a wedding business for $8 million. Paid off. Guess where they also don't want to put their money when they sell it? In the stock market. They like they don't have any money there. They have no experience doing that, right? And they go, well, it goes up and down and stuff all the time. And I don't understand how all that works. What I do understand is how to plow money back into my privately held business and have it grow, have a return on equity. And yeah. so they don't want to be in the stock market, right? But then you've got this whole financial services industry of a whole bunch of guys that are trained to say, hey, 
Um, Mr. Business Owner, congratulations, you're selling your business. You know, when you get done with all that, why don't you hand me that money and I'm going to put it in this diversified stock and bond portfolio for you. And you're going to be able to take a 4% withdrawal rate off of that portfolio for the rest of your life. Great. But, but the client has never done anything like that. They're, they've built this great business. And now at the end of the game, you're asking them to do something that they've never done before and don't feel comfortable with. Like that's, that's a hard conversation, right? So, so, you know, looking at the nature of the way something is taxed and then saying, okay, look, here's where we are. Here's where we want to be. Where do we want to be? Do we want to put this money back into the business? Do we want to take money off of the table? Do we want to get money into stocks and bonds? Some people like stocks and bonds. I'm not, I'm not hating on that, but I'm saying this particular fact pattern, this client doesn't. That's why I just brought that one up. So where do we want to put the money? What do we want to do with it? Is it, is it money that we need now to live on? Is it money that we would want to put away to grow? Is it money that's important that we carry on a legacy that for our kids, our grandkids, our church, a charity, maybe we want our name on the side of a building at a university we went to or something, right? Everybody's got different hopes, dreams, and aspirations for, for what they've accomplished over their lifetime. So where are we at now? Where do we want to go? And then what we're solving for is what are the tools in the middle that help us get from A to B in the most efficient way possible? They're just tools. They're, yep. they're no different than a carpenter walking into a job site with a tool belt, with hammers, nails, a level, you know, a saw, a measuring tape, and all the tools, like, you know, you pull the right tool out for the right job and the thing gets done. You start trying to be, you know, bang a nail into a wall by using your level, you know, or your, the, you know, the, the metal end of the tape measure, and it destroys your tools. They don't work very well when you try to do that, right? So it's just using the right tool for the right job. So where are we at today? What do we, where do we want to get and what tools help us get there? And when you're looking at it from a tax perspective, so like I have a, I have a pretty substantial real estate background. So this is not, when I talk, maybe I make this sound over simplistic, but like, you know, I've been in the real estate industry for over 20 years. I have a general contractor's license. I own two functioning construction companies. I know how real estate gets built, how it gets developed, how it gets taxed. Like um, I have training in the M&A world. So M&A mergers and acquisitions. I have yep. sell side tax training with that, that high level CPAs and attorneys have to know how to work off of the backside of a sell side tax allocation and determine, you know, where all those elements can go. So not everybody has that, right? This is not just me making this stuff up. I literally went to got the training to learn how to do it. So, so figuring out where to go, how to solve the problem. So if it's a capital gain issue, we look at capital gain tools. If it's an ordinary issue, we look at ordinary yeah. tax issues. If it's passive, we look at passive, so on and so forth. So it's about looking at the nature of the tax, where the client wants to go with the money, and then figuring out the tools that make the most sense. And then I'll say this. There is no magic wand that I can wave across the top of somebody's financial life and magically make all their taxes go away and let them continue to do all of the things that they currently do with their money today. If you want to save taxes, you're going to have to do something different than you've ever done. And to feel comfortable, you're going to have to learn something that you've never known. So if you ain't willing or capable of teaching that old dog a new trick, and I say that all the time to my clients, right? Then, then we can't do this because you got to right. you got to learn a new trick to get a new outcome that you've never had before. And the problem with that is, and I'll use the example of the person selling the business for eight million dollars. They get one shot at selling a business. One. 
This is their moment. Now, you are a personal trainer. How many times people come to the gym before and they suck at being in the gym? Their grip is wrong. They don't even wear the right clothes or the right shoes. They have no idea what they're doing and they look like an idiot. But if they keep showing up for the next month, they look like they know what they're doing a month later. They have figured it out. They got to learn. They got to practice. They got to buy the right gloves. They got to get the weight belt. They finally got their grips and everything right. They know what's going on. And now they are functioning as somebody in the gym. You don't have that luxury when you're going through a capital exit, when you're selling a business or a big piece of real estate, you get a finite amount of time to be able to use the tools out there that can help you mitigate taxes to do it right. So you got to learn fast and find the right people to help you fast. And you've got to learn to trust fast because it's not an infinite amount of time that you get to solve this problem. Nope. And the same thing with real estate, right? You know, same thing with a lot of these, you know, moment in time sales, right? Liquidity events. And that liquidity event doesn't give you, you know, an infinitesimal amount of time just to say, hey, I just, you know, I just won the lottery or I just did this, you know, it it has it has it has an immediate consequence as well. Yeah. 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 So that so I mean those are the, the those are those are some of the structural issues with the way that this business works and how you get somebody to that, you know, uh, thing. So, so I have built my business on, I don't consider the end clients, my clients. I consider the centers of influence that have trusted relationships with my clients and have had those for years to really be my clients. Because if I can help them and be that specialist to them, then they can convey that trust to their client of going, you know what? I've been with you 20 years, Bob. And, 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 and I think what he's saying makes a ton of sense. And I know that, you know, this sounds crazy, but based on everything I know and all the technical stuff I could look into the way it was presented to me, like I can see how this makes a lot of sense. And so I consider really the centers of influence, the current trusted advisors of the client to be my clients, because if I help them look better, if I help them be better, if I help them execute and deliver more value for their clients, then it's a win-win-win for everybody. So whether that's their CPA, their attorney, uh, their current real estate broker, some people, maybe that's their most trusted relationship, their M&A advisor, their business broker, helping them sell the business, or even sometimes their financial advisor, I have other financial advisors refer me clients today because they know their ego is in check enough, right? Because you know the financial services world, all these guys got huge egos sometimes, right? But every once in a while, you run into a guy that says, you know what? I know I can't do these things for this client. And what matters most is this, this client gets a good outcome. And, you know, if there's parts of it that I can do after the fact, when it's all said and done, great. But if there's not parts of it that I can do when it's all said and done, it's not going to kill me or my family. I'm going to be fine. I want this client to have the best outcome. So I work, I get referrals from other financial advisors. I mean, I have other, I have tons of financial advisors that are actually my clients, like big successful financial advisors that are my clients. So um, I wouldn't have thought that was going to happen. You want to be honest with you. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, it it goes back to what you were talking about. You need somebody to really be able, you know, the tail is in the tax return and how things are being presented. And therefore each component 
has strategy that must be deployed to mitigate change. It's amazing for as complex of a tax code as we have, which is insane. Sure. We also have a tremendous amount of control over how and when we pay taxes. But the difference usually is, do you have somebody that has the specialty knowledge to give you a strategy that allows you to take control versus, you know, letting it happen to you. And then, you know, you're just kind of getting that recorded. Okay. I took it in the pipe this year and I probably will do it again next year unless I figure out a different way forward, like you said. And here's a, and here's a caveat to that a little bit. I've left, I left this piece out. So you, you said something that reminded me of it and let me bring this up. So if a business owner understands when they're growing their business, that the decisions I'm going to make are not guaranteed to work, but the juice is worth the squeeze on this, right? Why would you file your tax return in a 100% compliant way? I'm not saying you're stealing money. I'm not saying you're lying. I'm not saying you're falsifying stuff. What I'm saying is there are strategies. So people think an audit is a bad thing, right? Sure. Let me play devil's advocate on that for a second. When we were in third grade, and we were asked to answer questions and we turned in our answer sheet and it got graded. All that was on it many times was just the answers to the question. And the teacher gave us a score, didn't give us a score, whatever. Sometimes the teacher said, hmm, can you show me your work of how you got to that answer? Doesn't mean your answer's wrong, doesn't mean your answer's right. All the teacher asked was, can you show me your homework, how you got there? An audit is no more complicated than saying, show me your homework. How did you get there? How, how did this math come together to get there? That's what it is. So how do you answer that? Well, how would you have answered it in third grade? If the teacher says, show me the calculations of how you got to the answer and you have a blank piece of paper with no calculations on it, what do you think the teacher is going to say? You must have cheated off of Becky because Becky was sitting next to you and Becky could show her homework and she has the right answer, right? Yeah. But if you can pull out your file with all your documentation, here's why we took this position. Here's why we thought it made sense. Here's the codes. Here's the regs. Here's the standard. Right now, is that more complicated than just a normal tax return? Absolutely. But we're talking about huge deltas in outcomes of saving hundreds of thousands of dollars by taking something that's not just a straight line compliant, you know, type tax position. So if you can support it with documentation and it's in the code, look, you're just building a file to say, look, if the tax man comes, here's all of my homework. Here's why I took the position. Here's why I believe it makes sense. And from a tax perspective, with the way the IRS looks at it, this might be a little bit out of the scope of this, but if anybody ever wanted to look it up, you know, when you're taking a tax position, there's would this work, would, could, should, more likely than not, and the minimum standard that you're shooting for from a tax position is what they call substantial authority. It's a 40% litmus test. So if you can make an argument that's better than 40% test in the IRS's eyes, substantial authority, and you've got documentation to support it, it's not criminal. You might pay some late taxes. You might pay some fees. You might pay a penalty or two along the way in some of those areas, but it's not criminal to take a position that only has the substance of 40% of substantial authority. I don't think most people have any clue that, that, that that's a thing. <laughs> no, and, and I think there's too much fear factor to feel like you're meddling in things when you don't know. But again, that's 
that's the thing, right? The difference is being equipped, working with specialists that do know that can create and use and deploy things that are, you're not, you're not in a lab inventing things here. Like these are proven effective code. code based strategies. It's just a function of the fact that people don't know that that's the strategy they can take advantage of. It's in the code. Like for example, 401k, everybody knows what a 401k, it's a mass affluent tool, right? Mm -hmm. I ask clients all the time and I'll ask you, is it possible for a 401k to blow up and cause taxation to every person that's a participant in the plan? Is it possible? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, right. <laughs> absolutely possible. There's filing requirements. There's 5,500s. There's other things that have to be done to keep a 401k plan compliant. Why does that not happen? Why do they not normally blow up? Well, because it's a very commonly used tool that a lot of people understand. And there's a lot of competition in the space to provide 401ks. And because of competition, it's raised the standard of a lot of people understanding how it works and what you do to make sure that they get it right. Right? Exactly. But 263C, 168K, 1031, 1400Z, 831B, like I can, you know, 169, like 409. There's so many other codes you can rattle off that solve other problems. But guess what? Those ain't mass affluent problems. Those are wealthy client problems. And people don't understand how those codes work because they don't see them, hear them, or talk about them all day, every day. Yeah. They're in the code. They're there. You just have to make an argument and you have to have the homework to support why you made that argument. Because think about it from this perspective. You think the IRS agent, the auditor that sees that stuff, sees a complex return with that stuff on it all day, every day? No, you're, you're not talking about like they see millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of returns that come in. We're talking about one percenter problems or 10 percenter problems of the population, right? You know, 50 percent of the people in this country don't pay tax. They're filing a return to get a refund. So you're only talking about the 51st percentile and up. And then from the 51st percentile to probably the 80th percentile, you're really talking about mass affluent clients, right? Yep. So all the mass affluent strategies work from 51 to 80 percent. So the accredited investor standard was created I, you know, I, I, sometimes I know this and right now it's just fading. It's out of my brain, but it's been decades since the accredited investor standard was created. And so accredited investor deems somebody to be financially sophisticated based on the amount of income they have or the assets that they've accumulated over time. It's just some arbitrary line in the sand that says this person is more sophisticated than somebody that makes less or has less. Right. Yep. Here's an interesting fact. When the code was created for an accredited investor, 2% of the U.S. population qualified as an accredited investor when the standard was created. And today, it's 18% of the population qualify as an accredited investor. So the minimum standard of the investors that I work with really are accredited investor. So I'm really only talking about the top 18% of the population. Now, above that, there's another standard called a qualified investor. That is $2.1 million of investable assets or greater, which is a higher standard. And then above that, there's what's called a qualified purchaser, which is $5 million of investable assets or more, which is probably what 90% of my clients actually are. So to give you context, this is, and most of the media doesn't talk about this stuff. And I'm in the media, by the way, if you look me up, I have a lot of media credentials. I talk a lot <laughs> of stuff. The media is in the business of selling clicks and eyeballs. Clicks and eyeballs is built for people that the, the fat middle pitch of everybody out there that is going to be attracted to this. 
the wealthy people that they would write the articles about this type of stuff about ain't sitting around and Googling, I'm really rich. What do I do with my money to save taxes? They're <laughs> trusting the advisors that they're hiring to help them do that. They're not trying to learn it through Google. Yep. So the articles on this high level stuff don't exist and aren't getting written in that way because they would never get clicks and eyeballs. And that's why media create things for clicks and eyeballs. It's just yep. not talking about it. And if it is, it's written in some extremely hard to understand tax memorandum by some really by some high level tax firm. And it's super complicated. When you Google it, you're like, I don't even know what this thing's saying. If you find a PDF of it somewhere, you're like, I don't even know what that dude's talking about. Right. Because it's yeah. not meant to be entertainment value that they can sell ads on on USA Today or something like that. I'm not banging on USA Today. I'm just saying in general, the media puts stuff out there so they get eyeballs so they can sell ads. Ad revenue is how the media makes money, not by giving high quality financial advice that fits your fact pattern. 100%. It's a business and they are in business to make money. That's right. Yeah. Now, let's land the plane. Are there any common mistakes you know, like, is there a cautionary tale or two that you would want just people to, you know, people that we've, we've described now very, very uh, succinctly, you know, the, the types of people that you work with, but I'm sure you've, you've had at least a moment or two where you've been introduced to somebody who, who had a, a problem, an issue, a concern, any ones that you think you'd want to share just to highlight to say, hey, if you know, or, or symptomatically speaking, right? You know, usually medically, you, you only get in touch with the symptom before you figure out and diagnose what the problem is. Are there symptoms that people might want to be aware of that would be this, you know, opportunity to say, hey, maybe I need to check this out? Sure. You know, I think some of the biggest issues that I see today is, you know, look, um, ones that I already mentioned, your trusted relationship, not having the skill or the the ability to practice doing these things and them, them killing it right out of the gate because they don't want to throw the time, the effort in to look at it, to figure it out. Or even if they did put in the time or the effort, they don't know how to get the money back out of it, right? They don't know how to charge the client for something they've never charged the client before. They're charging them $5,000 a year or $3,000 a year for a tax return. And then they're going to sell their business. And they're going to ask you to do 20 hours of research and some esoteric stuff that they never heard about before. They're, they're scratching their head going, even if I do all this work and I figure it all out and I can give them a decent answer, how am I going to get the client to write me a check for 10 grand for all the time that I put into it? Because they've never written me a check for any more than $3,000 before, right? So I think that's one issue is how does a CPA like provide the value and then get compensated for the value? I think that's really hard. Um, and it's just because they've had years of, of not doing that and not charging that. So then to do it at the end, the client's like, well, I thought that was what we do. I thought you helped me solve tax problems, you know? So I think that's always a, a real issue. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, today, and, and I don't know if, I don't know if it's happening more or I don't know if I'm, I'm just more conscious of it because of the way I think and the things that I see and maybe the way that social media curates content, the way that it serves it up to us. But clearly I get a lot of tax stuff that shows up in my feed because probably I Google for tax stuff and I read tax stuff all the time. So they send me more. So I would tell you that there's a lot of promoters out there today of structures and strategies that I don't believe have a lot of tax efficacy. They don't necessarily work. They don't work the way that they tell you they're going to work. They don't have the code is close, 
but somebody has modified it in a way to tell you that it's better. And the, the way that they modified it doesn't have the economic substance to it to be able to hold up under scrutiny were it challenged. And I think today there's this narrative out there that, you know, I've been on this journey for a long time. I think there's a lot of people catching up today to say, if I talk tax, not do tax, but talk tax, <laughs> I can get a high net worth client to trust me. And then if I want to sell them insurance, I can sell them insurance. If I want to sell them some type of investment, like I had a client that a few years back that um, was trying to, needed to do a 1031 on a $13 million real estate exchange. And there were some other financial advisor types involved in it. And they wanted me to say smart stuff to the client, but they wanted to sell the real estate for the client and put all of his money into an annuity because they made 15% commission on annuities. Now that would have cost this client like three to $4 million of immediate tax harm, but they wanted a 15% annuity commission sale out of it. Now I'm not telling you an annuity is a bad product. I'm not even telling you these dudes are bad dudes. But what I'm saying is, like talking tax to win the trust of a high net worth client to tell them you could solve a problem that you really can't to then sell another product that's good for you and not good for the client. I'm starting to see more and more of that go on in the industry today that 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 it hurts my heart a little bit that people have to be so disingenuous with people to try to enter the conversation that way. For example, the other day, I read something from the service that said, so the R&D tax credit thing is being talked about a ton out there today. Um, the R&D tax credit is a real thing. It really exists. It's in the code. The problem is, is you've got promoters that learned it from a promoter that learned it from a promoter that learned it from a promoter. And they're running around telling everybody about it, throwing stuff against the wall, hoping that it sticks. There's a lot of people trying to qualify for these benefits that it wasn't intended to. And the person they're getting the information from is not qualified. Right. And these, you know, uh, 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 other tax credit programs, you know, the, 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 the EILD loans and all the other stuff out there. There's so many promoters of these tax credit programs and they are not real and they are not legitimate. The IRS right now is put, they're putting notifications out there and saying that probably 90% of the people that you're getting this information from is not real and is not legitimate. It's a promoter issue. It's not that the code ain't real. It's not that that thing don't exist. It's that the people that are bringing it to you don't know what they're talking about and they're just using it as a door opener to probably try to find a way to sell you an annuity or life insurance because the proliferation of that is coming through the insurance industry, not even the securities industry. Because the insurance industry is a really low bar. It takes a, you know, a couple of weeks to get an insurance license. The training that's required in it is not all that high. And you got a ton of, and, and the commissions tend to be big when you sell an annuity or life insurance case. So all those people that have that minimum standard, and I ain't banging on insurance people. There is a place for insurance people to do their job. But to go in and say you're going to save somebody all this money and get them all these tax refunds and tax credits and all this other stuff in the hopes that when that money shows up or doesn't show up, right? If it shows up, then you go, hey, look, I showed you how to get all this money. By the way, I sell life insurance for a living. You should buy a lot of life insurance from me, right? Like, 
number one. But number two, there's other guys that go, oh man, you were so close. We thought you worked, but the time they now spent with that client built a little bit of trust and the client goes, wow, you at least brought me a cool idea. And I can't believe how close I was to really qualifying for that. Wow. That would have been great. Oh, by the way, you sell life insurance for a living. I, I need to have mine reviewed. Would you look at my life insurance? So even in scenarios where they can't help the person get the benefit, they are building a little bit of a relationship with some thought leadership that didn't even apply to get to sell a life insurance policy. And once again, I am not banging on the life insurance industry as a whole. It has a valuable role that it plays in the ecosystem that people do. But walking in the door to build a relationship on, on a disingenuous foundation of being able to do something that you can't do and this person doesn't qualify for to hope to get enough trust to sell a product like that is what I'm seeing a lot of. And I'm not the biggest fan of like, um, I don't know how they regulate that out. I don't know how that whole thing gets done, but, but that's something. And then, and then the worst part of that, or maybe not the worst part, but a bad part is then what if that person would actually qualify had they have met a legitimate provider of that strategy. And now later they actually meet a legitimate provider that knows how to get those benefits for the person and they should qualify. But because somebody came in there before and okie doked them and scammed or one or whatever, they're like, no, I've already been scammed. The guy tried to sell me a whole bunch of life insurance. I ain't listening to anything you got to say. So now they won't even lean into a benefit that they should get if they were talking to the person that could execute on it. Like, so then they, they don't get something they should have been entitled to. That Those are issues that I see in the marketplace today. And I know it's hard for the average consumer to know how to vet the person, the professional that they're talking to about how do they know what they're talking about? What are their credentials? How do they know that they're real? You know, I know that's hard for people to figure out. Um, and I don't know how to answer that stuff, right? Except, I guess, maybe go to the Google machine and just do as much research as you can looking up on people. But, but um, that's some of the biggest issues that I see today. People promoting strategies, you know, and you see it a lot of the in the in the cost savings world. You see a lot of cost savings advocates out there, you know, talking about, you know, we can help you save costs on this and costs on that. And, you know, like I had a story from a client that um, ran a restaurant. They did $30 million of revenue and a cost reduction analyst got at him and said, um, we can cut your uh, merchant processing expenses by thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. And the guy's like, you know, look, we're in the restaurant business. We know that we could have a lot of leakage in the merchant processing space. So we are very diligent. I, matter of fact, I have a person that does nothing but constantly stay on top of our merchant processing. We know we're good there. This consultant, adamant, we, I guarantee you, we save you money. I need all these documents and this, that, and the other. Like I would bet my life on it. So the business owner takes the time, takes the effort, puts all the documents together, provides everything to the person. Literally, the quote they came back was not even hundreds of dollars of savings. It was like tens of dollars of savings. So this client wasted time, effort, you know, the emotional bandwidth to get to the person. But all this person wanted to do was waste their time to get the documentation to try to. And the, and the client said, look. I pay attention to this because I know there would be leakage. Like there's a ton of other people you would have that conversation with go, you know what? It's funny. We signed our merchant agreement seven years ago and I've never looked at it since. Maybe I should have that reviewed. But in this scenario, when the client said, I know I could be messing up and I'm a, I pay attention and they still pushed them and were wrong. Like that's the point where you go, look, it's my job to make you aware that this could be a thing. If you are on top of it, then I did my job. Then I did my job. 
But but so many people are living and dying on making that next sale today that they can't get to the point where they can be consultive in the process. You know, like I turned clients away at the end of December that wanted to do some tax planning. And I mean, it would have made me a lot of money and saved them a lot of taxes. But I said to them, look, this isn't fair to either one of us because I don't have enough time to properly teach you what you need to know to understand what you're going to do. And I don't really need the extra money. It would be great, but I don't need it. It's not going to change my life right now. And guess what? You've been overpaying your taxes for years now. So you overpaying one more year isn't going to kill you either. So <laughs> let's punt for now and let's start working on it at the beginning of next year and we'll be good. But I can't get all this done with 10 days left in the calendar year that in a way that if I were you, I would want to know all the things that you need to know. And I don't want you to blindly trust me. Right. I want you to be able to ask the questions, take the time and read the documentation that you need to really understand it and cross check this stuff. So those are some of the issues I see. I hope that's a, 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 a decent answer. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And and I think, you know, it, it, it is, you know, some of the stuff that you've described is always unfortunate. You know, we, we operate in an industry where, you know, there's there's a there's bad actors in every industry. Right. And, and it's just, you know, um, Certainly, I think I, I, I do find, uh, you know, that, it, that when people are willing to say to take the time to a tell you up front, they're not, you know, this is what I'm an expert at. And these are the areas that I'm not. This is what I can cannot do. You know, when we're when we're valid and legitimate about those things and we're not trying to, you know, put everybody in the same box, you know, whole life insurance solves everybody's financial problem or whatever that is. Um, sure. You know, I think that that's that is certainly at least one benchmark that has been helpful. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's critical that that we deliver. Uh, you know, we're we're not delivering a product; we're delivering a strategy that is custom tailored to your situation. And the more complex your situation, probably the more time it's going to take to figure that strategy out and to deploy it to help you reap the benefits. And you know, and it's not a one and done. Right. It's sure. it's something that you're going to need to, man, you know, manicure and massage and work with and grow with. Well, I, you know, this has been fantastic. And uh, I, I could keep us going for hours, but but my audience will kill me. So I think we'll probably have to uh, I'll probably have to get another time to, to dive into some of the other stuff. But I really appreciate it. How can somebody get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out and talk? Pretty simple. I'm pretty easy to find. I, you know, there's, um, I have a Google alert set up on my name. So there's only three Matt or Matthew Chanceys out there. I'm the only Matthew Chancy that's a CFP. There's a guy out of Oklahoma that's a pretty rad drummer. Um, his stuff comes up in my content sometimes. Um, and there's a kind of a shady politician out of Alabama. Um, I am not either one of those people. Um, but Matt Chancy, CFP, um, I have a LinkedIn profile that'll come up if you type in Matt Chancy CFP. Um, my uh, my website uh, is Matt Chancy, and I think the one that I use today is Matt Chancy Live L I V E dot com. So you know, go to LinkedIn. You can connect with me there. Send me a message. Tell me how you heard about me. Um, I I prefer somebody to make a warm introduction. Consider LinkedIn like if you met somebody in a room. You wouldn't just walk up and say. 
you know, nothing and hand them your business card. You would introduce yourself, right? Say, hey, exactly. I'm so-and-so. I heard you on so-and-so's podcast. Sounded interesting. Would love to connect. Please introduce yourself. Say hello. That would be appreciated. But LinkedIn's a great way. The website, there's some contact information there. Pretty easy to find me. But uh, Matt Chancey, Certified Financial Planner. I'm based in Florida. So uh, not, not, not hard to find. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time today, Matt. Good stuff. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you having me on, my friend. It was a great time. The information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Heaney is a registered representative and an investment advisory representative of Dempsey Lord Smith, LLC. Dempsey Lord Smith LLC is not affiliated with the Haney Company. Securities offered through Dempsey Lord Smith LLC, Membra Finra Sipic. Advisory services offered through Dempsey Lord Smith LLC, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor.